Joe Biden is on the ropes over a sexual, sexual assault allegation. The media takes his usual approach, and the left continues his bad faith arguments against reopening. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the Guide and Freedom Show. Alrighty, so I hope everyone is doing okay today. Um, happy Friday. We have a lot to get to today, so let's not waste time here. Let's just jump right into what the news is over. So basically, um, a lot of most of the news cycle for the past like couple months or so has been pretty much over over this coronavirus pandemic, over like you know the cases and like stuff that's coming out of it and everything. So within with that, like, all being the case, there's a lot of other stories that's kind of being swept under the rug um, by the media. One of them involves um, the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. So, Joe Biden has not had himself a great week this week. Um, basically, the reason for that is because uh, there's this woman named Tara Reid. Um, she came out, came out about a month ago or so, I believe. She basically alleges that Joe Biden, um, she's alleging a sexual assault allegation against Biden. And so she alleges about in 1993, um, she was she worked with Biden as like a staff assistant, and basically she alleges that Joe Biden, when he when she was delivering a, uh, like gym bag to him, he pinned her against the wall and proceeded to put her put his hand on her in her under her shirt and under his skirt. And so yeah, it's a it's a pretty bad allegation, a really bad allegation. Um, of course, the only thing is it's like. There's it lacks the proper evidence to make it believable. I mean, she's credible. Like it's a credible allegation, but it's not. I, I'm not gonna say it's factual because it's there's not a whole lot of evidence. I mean, there is a little bit of corroborating evidence that come forward. Um, mostly people who said that she talked about it during the time. Um, it was a, her brother, a former neighbor, and a former colleague who both said all three of them said basically yeah this happened. And they remember like talking to her about it and everything. So you got that. But other than that, I mean, it's it's very it is kind of a fishy allegation in in a way, just the timing that this came out. I mean about a month ago, that's when I believe that's when you know Biden was for sure gonna be the nominee and everything or something like that during his height of this campaign. The fact that this came out right before Lena you know, primaries are over. It's a little fishy, and it kind of seems like just a last-minute thing to kind of get Joe Biden. But probably by the, I don't, I don't know, it was, I don't know. It just seems fishy, fishy to me. And whether it's from the radical left or probably some conservative side, it's still it's dirty politics all the way. But I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure. That's that's what's happening. But I'm also not sure if it this allegation actually happened. Of course, you know, Joe Biden has come out, you know, he's uh, denied the allegation and everything, as as he should. But, of course, you know, but his campaign this week, just the way he's defending it and everything, is not, he's not doing the best he he can do with him. And that's because I mean, it's Joe Biden. I mean, he's pretty much, he's pretty much dead. That guy. So, it's just, yeah, he's not come up with a proper defense to defend himself against an allegation, I mean, but he has denied it. You anyway, know, so, I mean, honestly, 
I mean, it's pretty much all about the allegation itself. Um, overall, again, just it's just not it is a very fishy allegation, and it's I mean, I have a hard time believing it's fully true. Uh, and everything so I mean we'll see where it goes we'll see if more evidence comes forward and and all that but one of the most irritating parts about all all this is the media as as usual the media is a flaming pile of hot, hot, hot garbage they they're just awful so um the reason for that is because I mean so you guys remember back kind off about two years ago a couple, a couple years back when Brett Kavanaugh was about to be um, confirmed to the Supreme Court and everything, but at the last minute, Democrats tried out this um, sexual, sexual assault allegation against him from a woman named Christine Blazer Ford, who alleges that he, he and a guy named Mark Judge pinned her to a bed, um, and, Mark, and then Biden, I mean, sorry, Kavanaugh, like, started to grope her, take her clothes off, started to take her clothes off and everything, and then um, cover her mouth to keep her from screaming and everything. And then she eventually escaped. But it turns out, I mean, that, that allegation just had no evidence, no corroborating evidence whatsoever. And that's no, no evidence at all. Like, just, there was nothing. So it was a very, it's pretty much a false, it was a false allegation. Let's just say that. I, and then there was other two allegations that came out against him. It was Julie Swetnick who accused him of gang rape. And then a... Another woman named Deborah Ramirez who accused him of uh, like sexual harassment and like that. And then again, like, like I said, there was no corroborating evidence for any of his allegations against Kavanaugh. None. And then the difference is for this allegation against Biden, there is some corroborating evidence. So there is a lot more evidence for Biden against Biden than there was against Kavanaugh. That doesn't mean Biden's guilty or anything, but still, there's a, there definitely is a lot more evidence. But the way the media has been like treating this whole thing is just, it is just, it is gross. It is very disgusting and like full-on double standard and everything. Like you, you, it's something you expect from the media. It's something you fully expect. So right here, I'm kind of give you an example of what I'm talking about. Here's a two pieces from the New York Times, kind of going over this. Uh, one is about Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh. One is about Joe Biden. So I'm going to start with the Brett Kavanaugh uh, allegation. So this is an opinion piece. It is uh, titled, it's from the editorial board of the New York Times. It's titled, How Brett Kavanaugh Failed and Why the Senate Should Vote to Keep Him Off the Supreme Court. The nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, as much as any development in the challenging era of Donald Trump, is testing America's politicians and its, and its civic institutions. Few so far have met the test. Not Republicans who, after denying one president his legitimate authority to appoint a justice, a justice to the Supreme Court, are now rushing to their own nominee through, uninterested in the truth while weeping crocodile te tears about other people's part partisanship. Not Democrat member Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, committee who tainted the process by bringing forward damaging allegations against um, Judge Kavanaugh only at last minute. Not the FBI, which either of his, which either of his own um, vo volition or or because of its constraints, 
imposed by the Republicans failed to interview many of the key witnesses who would who could speak to the goodness gracious guys I'm sorry guys who could speak to the accusations against Judge Kavanaugh and not President Trump to absolutely no one's surprise in this crucible of power politics of bullying and posturing and um, rage no one has been more severely tested than Judge Kavanaugh if he believes himself innocent of sexual assault. If he is innocent of sexual assault, to test him to to him can only appear monstrous. Yet unfair as the test might seem to the judge and his supporters, senators who want to preserve the credit his supporters, senators who want to preserve the credibility of the Supreme Court, cannot cannot now look away from the result. Judge Kavanaugh failed. Decisively. How? First, he gave misleading an answers under under oath. Judges, particularly particularly judging Supreme Court. I'm sorry, guys. I know I'm, I'm just having trouble reading today for some reason. And having trouble talking. How? First, he gave misleading answers under oath. Judges particularly Supreme Court justices, must have and an be seen as having unimpeachable, unimpeachable integrity. The knuckle-headed mistakes of the young person to drinking too much, writing offensive things in a yearbook, should not in themselves be bars to high school, to, to a high office. <clears throat> but deliberately misleading senators about them during the confirmation process has to be. If Judge Kavanaugh will lie about small things. Won't he lie about the big ones as well? First of all, he didn't lie. There's no evidence that he actually lied. All he did was that he was vague about how much he drank, but he never said he never drank. He, he, he fully admitted that he did drink in high school. But of course, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that he definitely committed a sexual assault or anything. I mean, the fact that they went after his drinking and they went, went after things he wrote in his yearbook and all that, it just... I'm sorry, that does not make sense. And nothing, first of all, like a lot of things he said, they're basing off like he's something called a boothing or thing. Something like they, you know, Kavanaugh said that that meant like farting or something like that. But Democrats are kind of twisting it, saying, no, it actually means like something like sexual wise or something like that. But again, as we, um, I've looked it up before, like, it's actually, there's multiple usage, usage of the word, so there's not a definite in, um, definite, like, meaning to it. Alright, it continues right here. Indeed, he already, he already has. During the course of his confirmation hearings, he claimed implausibly that he was not aware of the files he received from a Senate staff member and some labeled high... Confidential or intel had been stolen from Democratic computers. Even small lies, of course, aren't so small in context since they relate to drinking or sex and thus prop up his choir boy who indulge now and then in then defense. Second, confronted with the accusations against him, Judge Kavanaugh made a recourse not to reason or 
methodical process, but to fear in the, in, in the rawest um, partisanship. Because, you know, again, you're all accused of, of, um, of gang rape. So, I mean, anybody in that in, in the right mind would be pretty ticked off. Anybody would. And I'm sorry, like, him getting angry and all that. It's like, in calling out the Democrats for who they were, political hats. I mean, they rightfully deserve that. They rightfully deserve that. It was, again, that's the most... The Kavanaugh thing, the Kavanaugh thing was the most disgusting... The that was the worst political smear I've ever seen in my life. It was it was just awful. But you know, the New York Times piece just continues along like this. You know, it just, it just it's so stupid. In contrast, here is a piece about Joe Biden's accusation. It is quite quite dis the distinction. So. So here is what the here's what it says. The um, piece is titled "The Times took 19 days to report an accusation against Biden." Here's why. So, um, so basically, the reason because this thing's been out for a month and like nobody in the media really reported on it, including the New York Times, and then now they're defending why they waited for it. It's interesting. Very, very interesting. On March 25th, Tara Reid, a former Senate aide for Joseph R. Biden Jr., alleged in an interview on a podcast that Mr. Biden, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, had sexually assaulted her in 1993. The New York Times did not immediately report the allegation. More than two weeks later, on April, um, April 12th, the Times published an article by Lisa Lear and Sidney Ember that included an interview with Ms. Reed detailing her claims. The article reported that a friend said that Ms. Reed had recounted the details of the alleged assault to her at the time, and the, her, the former Senate colleagues of Ms. Reed said that they did not recall any talk of the episode. And in the course of the, the reporting, the author said, The Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden. What in the world just happened? Something just... Go away. I'm oh, sorry about that. So, yeah, this is where I left off. Uh, anyway, so basically... I mean, they're not entirely, entirely wrong about that. Again, it is a very... Scanty out, like it's a very weak, weak allegation. Again, there's only like three people who corroborated her, corroborated her claims, and then the people who could said that they don't recall the incident. So it's it's very question, questionable. The timeline of the article has been questioned by critics who say that a delay was a way to play down allegations against Mr. Biden in the midst of, of a race for a Democratic presidential nomination. Mr. Biden's allies, who tremendously deny Ms. Reed's accusation, believe her allegation is not supported strongly enough to publish at all. So basically, basically what the speech is saying is that, you know, the reason why they didn't report on the allegation at first is it was because they didn't have enough evidence. They just didn't. We, can't, we, we don't have enough evidence, guys. We can't. We can't. We can't report on it or anything. Which I mean, 
that would make sense for a journalist to do in any case. But if Joe Biden was a Democrat, a Republican, there's no way they would do that. His opponent that did that with Brett Kavanaugh. There was no evidence that came up to support the claim, but the New York Times printed a bunch of pieces on it anyways. So, again, I got no, there's no bias. Don't get it wrong. There's no bias at all. So it's it's very, very gross, gross stuff. And it's like, and the New York Times is not the only people, person, news organization has done this. I've seen it as did the same thing. Washington Post did the same thing. You know, they reported on count out stuff like almost immediately, but they waited as long as they can could over the Joe Biden stuff. It's, yeah, our media is just a flaming pile of hot garbage. Always is, always will be. And that's why the that's why the credibility is in the toilet right now. Alright, so I'm gonna continue on with some more a few more about this the allegation and then go on to other stuff. But first you're gonna have to go over to YouTube or the God of Freedom blog to watch the rest of the episode. So not only you get the you know, whether to talk about the news wise, the rest of rest of the news of today, but also you get get to the end where I talk about I mean go over the book of John. I'm just doing John chapter twelve today. Um, remember you can find me on my find me on your favorite podcast listening sites. Like I have a podcast, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Otherwise, I'll see y'all next week. This is the Guy for New Show. All right, so let's continue on right here. So, yeah, I mean, as far as, like, you know, I get his concern, again, I mean, Biden has denied it and everything. Um, he has had a, he had an interview this morning over in the, in the embassy hosts, like, grilled him over and everything. So, again, we'll see where, what comes out of this. Maybe more evidence will come up, come up maybe not. But as of right now, personally, I am skeptical, skeptical. Of the allegation, it just seems too. In time wise, it seems too convenient to me. All right, so let's um, move on to, uh, of course, you know, COVID nineteen stuff. So, all right, more coronavirus stuff. All right, so as I talked about last week, um, there's a few states that are starting to reopen their um their states to. Um, certain businesses and everything. Um, one of them being Georgia. We got Louisiana, Florida's doing it as well. I think South Carolina's doing it now, and Colorado, too. So yeah, there's several states around the country that are starting to reopen their businesses and everything to get the ball moving with, with it. Of course, the media and the left are not happy about it. They they want this the country to stay locked down as long as possible for reasons. I mean, I honestly don't know why. But they want to do that, and and they're just making all sorts of bad arguments against reopening, saying like if you support reopening, that means you hate grandma, that you want grandma to die or die or something like that. It's that is it's just really disgusting stuff, and it's not true in the slightest at all. I mean, first off, 
again, what we can do is that we can isolate the most vulnerable people and keep them safe, but let everybody else, like healthy, healthy people with no young people with no um, underlying conditions, let them go back to work. Let them go about their business. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know. It just the way the media and lectures react to reopening is just very. Very eye-opening. So here's a piece from the Atlantic about Georgia's reopening, and here here's what is titled: "Is under their health section." Georgia's Georgia's experiment and human sacrifice. I'm not kidding. That's the actual um, headline. At first, Derek. Um, can Veggio thought he would be able to ride out the coronavirus at home until things were safe. As a bar manager at the Globe in Athens, Athens Georgia, Kevin Canavaggio hasn't been allowed to work for weeks. Local officials in Athens issued Georgia's first local shelter-in-place order on March 19th, canceling the events that usually make spring a busy time for Athens, Athens bars and effectively eliminating the city's rowdy downtown party district built around the University of Georgia. The state's governor, Brian Kitt, followed in early April with a statewide shutdown. But then the governor sent Canna Vigil into what he calls a spreadsheet hell in an announcement last week. Kim abruptly reversed course on the shutdown, ending many of his own restrictions on businesses and overruling those put in place by mayors throughout the state. On Friday, gyms, churches, hair salons, hair, hair and nail salons, and tattoo parlors were allowed to reopen if the owners were willing. Willing. Yesterday, restaurants and movie theaters came back, and the U-turn has left Georgia scrambling. Vaggio has spent days Crunching the numbers to figure out whether reopening his bar is worth the safety risk or even feasible in the first place, given how persistent safety concerns could create a demand for you know, leisurely, in, leisurely indoor happy hour. We can't figure out a way to make the numbers work to sustain, sustain business and, and pay rent and pay everybody to go back and risk their lives. He told me if we tried to open on Monday, we'd be closed in two weeks, probably for good, with um, more debt on our hands. Kip's order shocked people across the country for weeks. Americans who have watched um, the coronavirus sweep from city to city, overwhelming hospitals, trauma traumatizing, traumatizing healthcare workers and leave leaving tens of thousands of bodies in makeshift morgues. First of all, if the hospitals are not overwhelmed, not even the size, not even in New York, <laughs> I mean, no hospitals are actually overwhelmed or anything. And the like makeshift morgues are talking about with bodies. They're talking about this like big like massive grave in New York or you know, somewhere around the area. But that's been that's that was built a long time ago is for un 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 Identified bodies or or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Anyways, it continues right here. 
Georgia has been hit particularly hard by the pandemic, and the state's testing efforts have provided an incomplete look on how how far the virus continues to spread. The, the test that testing capacity with public health leaders consider necessary for safely ending lockdowns has lied behind the nations for much of the past two two months. Kent's move to reopen was condemned by scientists, high-ranking Republicans from his own state, and Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. It even drew public rebuke from President Donald Trump, who had reportedly approved measures before distancing himself from Governor and made the backlash. Public health officials broadly agree that reopening businesses, especially those that require um, physical contact in places to where the virus has already spread, will kill people. So this is the kind of language that just, it just, it's gross in, in itself. First of all, like those places are talking about the nail salons, the hair salons, tattoo parlors. Those places are already sanitized enough as it is, especially tattoo parlors. So, I mean, I don't, I don't see the problem if they wear gloves, wear masks and everything, and have the customers wear masks as well. And then, you know, sanitize the station, have them, customers put on hand sanitizer or just take the precautions like that and have everybody else social distance. <laughs> What's the problem? There's no problem with that whatsoever. But, you know, according to public health officials, it will kill people if they do that. Even so, many other states have quite, are quietly considering similar moves to Georgia's. Most are taking a more measured approach, waiting a bit longer to reopen, setting testing or infection benchmarks that must first be met. But some, such as Oklahoma and Colorado, have already put similar plans in motion. By acting with particular haste in what he calls a crucial move to restore economic stability, Kemp has positioned Georgia at the center of a national fight of whether to stay the course with social distancing or try to return to some semblance of normalcy. But it's easy to misunderstand which Americans stand on each side. Many Georgians have no um, have no delusions about the risks of reopening. Even they need to return to work for financial reasons. Among the dozens of local leaders, business owners, and workers I, I spoke with for this article, all said that they knew some people who disagree with lockdown but were complying nonetheless. No one reported a serious acrimony in, acrimony in their communities. Instead, the stories depict a struggle between state government, order, and people. Georgia's brash, brash reopening puts m much of the state's worker class in a possible bind. Risk death at work or risk ruining yourself financially at home. I mean, why? That is, I'm sorry, that's not, it's not a black and white scenario. Either you stay locked down and lose money or you go to work and die. That's not how this works. Again, if you take precautions and everything, and you know, wear a mask, sanitize, you'll be okay. You will be okay. I'm going back to work and everything. As long and the thing is, here's the problem right here: the media and the people on the left, they don't, they don't think the American people can be responsible enough to, you know, social socially distance at all. They, they just don't believe that. They don't. They don't believe Americans are responsible enough for that. And that's why they want to push governments to keep people in lockdown indefinitely. But, thing is, I mean, 
I, I've seen it myself. People in America, American people can be responsible. Like just today, I went to get an oil change at a little um, this quick lane forward place near near me, and everybody there was socially distancing. They didn't really have to be told to. They was doing it naturally. So people can will be responsible during this. That's why it doesn't make sense why, like California is closing parks and beaches. I don't know because all the people in the pictures they've been showing, all of them have been, are socially distancing. And we had a church gathering um last Sunday. So it's an evening. Evening, everybody's socially distanced, and it was it was an awesome time seeing everybody's faces again. Excuse me, guys. Um, so I mean, just this fear mongering from the left is 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 gross. Like, again, it's not a black and white white scenario, and the bath and the arguments they're making is is so in bad faith and just so <clears throat> disgusting. Another way, I mean, the thing is, public policy. When it comes to public policy, you have to have take some form of risk. I mean, there's no you can't we we can't stay locked down like this forever. Eventually, everybody's going to have to reopen. And we're going to have to suck it up and go back to it. Yes, people will get sick. People will die. That'll be absolutely tragic. But <laughs> but if we stay locked down like this for for, for indefinitely. That would be a lot worse than what this virus could ever do. Excuse me. Sorry, guys. Is that sudden tickle in my throat? Better. <clears throat> but, um, and there's a lot of evidence coming out that the lockdowns weren't even necessary in the first place. And the evidence for that is um, what is happening in Sweden. So Sweden, you know, they've been definitely hit by it and everything, but the thing is, they have not yet we've seen kind of a recent spike in cases in their, in their in, in coronavirus stuff, but for them, they, they didn't lock down. They, you know, close, you know, isolated the vulnerable, closed some, like, sporting events and everything. But other than that, everybody else was able to go back to work like normally. And you know, of course, as a result of that, people would, a lot more people would get sick from it, and a lot more people would die from it. But that is that is a short-term cost to a long-term benefit. The long-term benefit right now is that they won't get a second wave. Um, other part of the country, including the United States, will get a second wave coming in the fall when the same returns. But as far as Sweden, they won't because everybody else has been exposed to it, has gotten sick from it, and likely has antibodies to fight it off when it comes back. Because I mean, even like for most people, anyways, it's most people will have very mild symptoms or asymptomatic system, like like have no symptoms, and like when people. When like people like get it like and recover from it, they build up an immune to it. So eventually, when it comes back, the body recognizes it and can fight it off. So that's what Sweden basically did. They basically had everybody be exposed to it and, and all that, and then now there's a herd immunity. So they won't have it second away, and they'll be perfectly fine in the long term run. So with that being said, I mean 
this that's what the United States should have done in the first place. That's exactly what, what should have been done. So, I don't know. But, it's, but the, that's why that's why when we do, everybody starts to open it back up, there will be a spike in cases because everybody is cooked up inside of the, ho- inside the house carrying the virus and everything. And then supposing people have not been exposed to it. But, if we were to if we didn't um, close them and had everybody be exposed to it, eventually we would have reached herd immunity. But even New York City, it's like New York City got hit hard um, by the coronavirus. But now, like since like a lot of people are getting sick from it, they're starting to build a herd immunity to it. So um, there's a possibility that, that they might not even get a second wave. So we should, we'll see what happens in the fall. I mean, it very, most likely it will return. I mean, probably not in the fashion it did this time around, but but still will return. And of course, what we what we need to do when it comes back in the fall is that we again we don't need to shut down everything again. There's no need for that. We just need to again take precautions necessary, you know, social distance if needed or something like that. And then have like you know testing abilities, and hopefully we'll have you know good therapeutics and medicine to help out with the treatments and everything. So we'll see what happens in the fall. So I, mean, I don't know. It's, it's going to be, but uh, on the positive side is it is right now. It is starting that we're we're seeing the backside of this. It is we have peaked in terms of cases and deaths, so it is starting to kind of go down and everything so we should over the next month or so we start we just start seeing things getting much better and going back to normal all right so let's um let's get on to scripture so let's um we're going to be doing john chapter 12 today let's pull it up so it'll be verses 12 through 19 and 12, and it's about Jesus' triumph entry into Jerusalem. And remember, you can follow me along if you want, and I'll be the New Living Translation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, see. Next day, the news that Jesus had was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down, down the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the um, name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode it on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid. People of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming, ride on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus, en- Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered. The, what had happened to realize that these things had been written about him. <clears throat> Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the, from the dead. <clears throat> That's a good minute, guys. Sorry. My throat is just <coughs> something very tickling. <clears throat> it happens sometimes when I you know, talk a lot into. But anyways, uh, where was I? 17. 
Many of the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they heard, had heard about the miraculous signs. The, the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. So this is like kind of a simple little passage, passage but it's really pretty cool. So, I mean, what's cool about like kind of the gospel and everything, like how they show like each little prophecy that Jesus fulfilled in terms of like hit the Messiah and everything. Like Matthew did this like the most. That's why kind of Matthew is geared towards more the Jewish people, but John is geared to, towards more everybody. Like pretty much everybody in Jews and the Gentiles. And like Mark is kind of I forget where Mark usually kind of audiences that towards, but Luke is more towards kind of the atheists, people who don't believe in everything. So it's it's pretty cool. So next week is gonna be over um Jesus predicts the death. We'll be starting to verse twenty. Alright, so let's get into some good stuff and bad stuff of the week. So, some good stuff of the week, um, yeah, let's, once again, we're going to talk about Clone Wars. So, Clone Wars is starting, is about to come to an end. Um, their final episode will air on May 4th. But the recent episode, like, episode that came out today, oh, it was so good. So, it's over Order 66, kind of, but from kind of Ahsoka's view of what happened and everything. It was pretty intense. It could pretty intense. It kind of took a twist I didn't actually see coming in terms of one of the characters. Yeah, about it because I perceived, like, okay, I'm talking about Captain Rex for those who wouldn't want to know. So, Captain Rex, and, um, you know, he's one of the clone um, troopers. He's a really cool guy, too. Like, he was main character throughout the Clone War series, and then he returned to Rebels, a much older. And one thing he said that he removed his inhibitor chip, because that's the same with the clones, that they have an inhibitor chip in their heads, so that when Order 66 is called, they have no choice but to follow the order. That's why it's all the clones turn on the Jedi. So with our Rex, he said that he removed his inhibitor chip and never turned on Ahsoka, which is partly true, but this episode kind of put a little twist on it. So here's a little um, snippet of from the episode right here. This is about Order 66. A fine place starts. There we go. Alright, so here is the video right here.
Yeah, first of all, like, Sokka's a freaking badass. Like, seriously, like, she fought off those <laughs> clone troopers, like, pretty, pretty easily. And, like, yeah, she's pretty, pretty awesome. So, um, the twist sometimes, I was like, Rex actually initiated Fight Father or 66. So, um, I assumed that Rex already took out his hit of chip. But, it turns out he didn't and was, was about to kill Sokka. But, you can see that he was trying his best to fight it off. And so it's it's very it was an intense episode. It's a very intense episode, and it kind of cool. You see, kind of hear Sokka hear sense what's going on with Anakin and everything. Kind of you see hear snippets from episode three, um, during it when um you know Sidious um you know <clears throat> uh, Miss Window is about to kill Sidious and everything. So very interesting stuff. Very again. I, it's, got, it's on Disney Plus, so definitely recommend checking out the entire series is going to be on Disney Plus, and I can't wait to see what the final episode is going to be. But uh, as a spoiler for the end of the episode, um, Rex did get his inhibitor chipped um, removed, and what's cool is that there's a scene where Ahsoka is being um, overwhelmed by the clone of the clone troopers, but then Rex takes out his pistols and shoots the other clone troopers, saving her. So <clears throat> very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. I can't wait to see what next episode is going to be. Alright, so let's get into some best of the week. So, some best of the week. Um, This was something crazy that happened, I think, on Monday. Um, Basically, you know, everybody knows Dark Dynasty, the family from Dark Dynasty, the Robson family. So, something crazy happened to them on Monday. Um, the guy basically <clears throat> just stopped by. Oh, drove up to the house, stopped, got out of the car, and started shooting um, at their house. It shot off about 10 rounds at the house or so. so but everybody's apparently okay um, from it. Nobody got hurt. What's crazy about it, like everybody, like people were outside right before it happened, but then it went right inside um, just before the guy arrived. But again, everybody's okay, and the guy has been... Um, arrested for it. Uh, we don't know his motive, but or anything about it. It seems to be um, they were targeting their family, the Robinson family. It just it seems fit like like they got literally stopped at their house, got out, and shot at their house. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. But the guy said that it was an accident. He didn't mean to shut off the ten rounds or anything, which it's pretty weird. Like, how did he accidentally stop at somebody's house who happens to be of someone famous, get out and accidentally take out your gun, aim, and start shooting. You're like, how do you accidentally do that? That just doesn't make no sense. But again, honestly, anybody who's stupid enough to go after them, like, I'm sorry, like, you need a brain. You need a brain because everybody knows, everybody who knows the, the, the Robson family, Robson family, they know that they have guns. They have a lot of guns. And then the Robson men there already were already you know, taking out their guns and ready to fight off anybody who is um, shooting at them and, and protecting their families. So, but seriously, you know, how stupid can you be to shoot at them? You started shooting at them. So that's why the guy never actually went into the house because only to fire from a distance because he knew he would have been there with fire, gunfire. <clears throat> Alrighty. 
So I think that's all I have for this episode. So I'll be back here next week with all the latest. My name is Sean Clinton, and this is the God of Premium Show. If you enjoyed this episode of the God of Premium Show, hit that like button and follow the page to get more content. You can also find me on your favorite podcast listening sites like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening or watching.